IE Business Podcast, brought to you by the Irish Examiner, in association with PwC, experts in audit, tax and advisory services. Hello there, and welcome to the IE Business Podcast, in association with PwC. Talking to me today is a former corporate lawyer turned distiller with Skellig 618, her own business based out of a renovated textile factory on the Ring of Kerry, which is taking on some of the biggest players on the spirits world stage. Juna Connell, you're very welcome. Uh, So first off, Juna, I have to ask, what was it about corporate law, essentially, that drove you to the alcohol trade? Oh, gosh, Um, that might need a high stool. Um, There wasn't particularly anything about it that drove me away from it. It was just a good time. I was 25 years in the business. It was very good to me. I worked very hard. Um, I am a carcerine woman. I found myself um, in Dublin after four fabulous years at UCC. Um, Always intending to say, sure, I'll take this as far as it goes and we'll see then. Um, it went well for me. I threw myself at it. And then I suppose I just checked in with myself after a while and said, do I want another 25 years at this? And um, or is it time to do something else? So um, it wasn't anything particular that drove me from it. But it's no harm every so often to check in with yourself and see, am I still in the right place doing the right thing? Yeah, for sure. And you said you're from Cahersveen there. Um, was it important for you to do something in Kerry? You know, you said that you're from, you You spent time in Cork, you went to Dublin. Why decide to be like, hang on a minute, I want to open my own business and I'm going to go back to my own roots as well to do it? Well, I suppose anybody who has started her business or is involved in a business um, knows how much energy it takes um, to actually move a rock from moving to get some momentum. And so it had to be something that I really wanted to do. And it had to be for many good reasons, not least commercial. It's a commercial entity. Um, but certainly the amount of time that I knew I was going to have to allocate to um, the new business um, meant that if I had a choice, I rather spend more time in Kerry and Carsevine than less. And so when the time came to look to what type of a business that we wanted to get involved in, um, that was high up on the list in terms of making sure that for a business with a long business plan, this is a 20 year business plan. It's not a tech business, which might have a five year business plan that, you know, you you were setting yourself up as best you could to get be as engaged as you needed to be for as long as it took. And so being home more often was key to that. Yeah. And are there entrepreneurs in your family? Was some was opening a business always something you wanted to do? Or was it something that came along the way in, in corporate life when you were looking at everybody else doing their own stuff and that kind of thing? Was there a, an itch that needed to be scratched there? Uh, or was it in your blood? A bit of both, I suppose. Um, from exterior looking at a, a, a legal partnership, Um, I suppose what people won't necessarily be live to is that each partner is um, an owner of the business and runs their own book, as it were. And so you um, understood the nuances of that, albeit within a sort of a, I'm using this word loosely, franchise kind of arrangement. Um, Anybody who grew up where I grew up is an entrepreneur, because if you were, we're only one or two generations away from being a fisherman or a farmer. Um, and so the women as well were very intrinsic in the working lives um, of any family growing up here. And so 
making things happen was just is just in the DNA. Certainly, I suppose it was a kind of a combination of both having worked in a very big organization with very large corporate global clients. I learned a lot about process, albeit accidentally. I was their legal advisor. We were buying and selling companies. But when you get stuck into a data room and a due diligence and you get under the bonnet of a business, you learn a lot about it. So I learned a lot of process. So that was helpful as well. But to answer your question, not directly, although my parents and grandparents my parents and my, my grandparents, my mother's from a small village, fishing village, Port McGee, and all belong to me are fishermen and they are their own bosses. And I tell you, if you can't react to the vagaries that the weather throws at you and be flexible there, then I don't know what a better test there is for entrepreneurship. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, two points that you made there, I think, are really interesting for your business in particular. First off, you know, you're saying that everybody is not far away from being their own entrepreneur, whether it's farming or fishing. And that seems to be a huge part of your business in particular, because even though it's it's gin and whiskey and spirits, um, you know, an awful lot of the botanicals around Kerry and that kind of thing seem to go into your product. And secondly, uh, you know, you're saying that you get to as a corporate lawyer, you got to look under the bonnet of a lot of businesses you also have a uh, visitor center and I, that always fascinates me that there's not a lot of businesses you can actually peek behind the curtain as a as a lay person and see how a product is made so I suppose it was a marriage of all those things um, coming together that led to Skellig 618 would that be true to say you know the kind of agricultural background looking at all the stuff that's available in Kerry and in and around that area plus you know, your own kind of experience of being like, it's great to actually see how a business is made. Yeah, well, I suppose when we were looking at a business to get involved in, we really wanted it to be something that was, uh, had legs. Um, mm. and, and and as a global business, when you look at Ireland, yes, you can look at pharma and tech. Um, mostly they are not necessarily of late, well, increasingly so of late, I should say, you know, indigenous business. So if you look at what we're renowned for around the world, it's golf, castles, whiskey, uh, blood stock in terms of horse racing, arguably butter, dairy, in food ingredients. So, you know, when we started leaning into that, whiskey was something that I was always interested in. Um, not least because early on in my career, I spent a number of years working in South Africa, in Cape Town, where a lot of the clients of the legal practice I worked with were in the wine industry and in the brandy industry. And of course, it's important to know that, um, you know, Ireland is also famous for whiskey because we grow grain here. So whiskey is made from grain. So in the same way as brandy is made from wine, from grapes, whiskey is made from beer, from grain. Um, so that's really where the agricultural piece comes into the whiskey and the Irish whiskey industry uses an awful lot of Irish barley in particular um, that's grown here. And on the gin side, we particularly wanted our gin to taste of our place. And so we set up a base gin, which you want your gin to taste of gin. And then we went foraging. We found about, oh, my God, that was a day of learning. I mean, I'm really looking forward to going back and doing a bit more of that again when I get some free time, whenever that's going to be. But that whole day or two days of really hard learning about everything that was growing, we had some great help around us. And then we whittled that down to four Irish, wild Irish botanicals, which we include in the gin. We treat them like the sacrilegious uh, ingredients, food ingredients that they are. Um, and we include that in every bottle of our Skellig 618 gin. So whiskey making, spirit making and agriculture are intrinsically linked on the island of Ireland. Um, it is a global business. 
I mean, just to give your listeners a sense of the um, the size of the business, you know, um, 15.2 million cases of Irish whiskey were sold worldwide in 2022. That's 182 million bottles of Irish whiskey wow. that were sold. And very often the first time somebody comes across Ireland is through a bottle of whiskey. That's their first impression of it. Um, and so keeping the quality and the premium nature of it is really important to the industry. And Irish whiskey is a GI product. Um, and by GI, I mean geographic indicatie on like Parmaham or Champagne, maybe some of your listeners would be more familiar with. And as such, there are a very strict set of rules about what, how the whiskey is made, how the spirit is made and what ingredients go into it before you can get that very, very sought after label of Irish whiskey mm-hmm. on the label. Um, and that's regulated and, and um, by the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine in Ireland. And so coming back to your point about the visitor experience, um, the visitor experience in Carsevine is important to us on a number of levels. But what we find really interesting is that, you know, you're talking about the theory and all people want to do sometimes is go and look at the bottling line. You know, people often want to see like what goes on, how does it get into the bottle? And we mature there, we finish there, we blend there um, and we bottle there. So all those are busy, old fashioned manufacturing, hands on jobs that people are fascinated by. Yeah. Um, And I think it's really interesting what you said there about when people think of Ireland, uh, there's a number of things that come to mind and Irish whiskey is one of them for sure, as you were saying. And you have entered that market now and you are up against global players, people who are, um, you know, have been in the business a long time, big players, and you've been recognised at global awards for your gin and whiskey. Are, do you ever see those big players look at you and be like, hang on a minute, who's this person from the Ring of Kerry coming in and uh, starting to put their product out there? And do you, is that daunting for you? And do you think that there's a concern there among bigger players about smaller distilleries coming in and being like, hang on a minute, this is our product and we're going to make it the way we want to and we want more of it in pubs and in, in shops and that kind of thing? She said, I'd love if global players were wondering what we were doing down in the Ring of Kerry. That'd be a great problem <laughs> to have um, in, in, on the Skellig Coast. Um, I think in, in, in the context of the Irish whiskey category and the Irish gin category, um, it's very collegiate because the world is a very big place. This is an island of um, population all told. And it is an all-island industry, so it's important to say that as well. Mm. Irish whiskey is an all-island industry. So its population of, is it 7.4 million on the island of Ireland? Um, it's not big enough to have a, an industry um, and that's your market. So it's an export facing market. So I suppose when we all put on the jersey and we go abroad, it's really important for us to be very collegiate if we're to grow the sector. Um, so certainly there is an enormous amount of help within the Irish whiskey industry um, at this stage, maybe in 40 years time, it'll be different. Um, but certainly there is still a level of independence um, but a lot of the Irish whiskey brands are owned by big multinationals because that is the nature of the industry to get your product on a menu in New Mexico. Um, it's much easier to get it on there if somebody is already going in there to sell a tequila or a white rum or a scotch. 
Um, and then they can say, oh, and by the way, I also have this very interesting Irish whiskey or this Irish gin. Would you be interested in trying it? Mm. So that's the nature. The distribution and the route to market is the hardest part of this industry. Um, certainly, we ourselves, Skellig Distillery, we're very much of our place. And we take our name from the 618 steps that the monks carved into the face of that rock in the sixth century to build their monastery. And so you have to remind yourself of that often. You know, we might be only on step 42. Um, there's a long way to go. But, you know, if you haven't built step 22, 23 and 24 properly, you know, you're in trouble. So the foundation level is really important to get that right. Um, in terms of Ireland, I would love to see Irish people talking about Irish whiskey like the French talk about French wine. Mm. I think that we need to have a pride in what we're creating here, which is an absolute world class product. It's sought after for its quality. The GI protection is really important there. And um, I am a member, Skellig is a member of the Irish Whiskey Association. And a lot of the budget goes to protecting the integrity of the label. Um, and um and within that, it'll say Irish whiskey and then there'll be other labels on it because we make four different types of whiskey in Ireland, which all have their own um, label, a bit like Premier Cru or Premier Grand Cru, a tiny line on a French label, but hard sought and very hard protected. So, I mean, I would really love to see Irish people embrace whiskey in the same way as the French embraced French wine. And, and, and in a practical level, what I mean by that is you wouldn't go into a French restaurant and expect to see the first five choices of wine being from Germany or Italy uh, and vice versa in Italy or Germany. Um, and so we often use the tagline, ask for us, the hashtag. So as independence and Irish whiskey, we, you know, it'd be great to have the pride and we're working on that as an industry. People understanding how Irish whiskey is made. We are an agricultural society, so we understand grain. Uh, we make a simple beer first and then without the hops and then you transfer the grain and release the sugars and then you put it through the stills. Um, you either put it through the pot stills, which is a batch process, which is what makes any whiskey made in a pot still more expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and then the magic happens when it goes into the wood. So yeah. um, so as all of that um, is a combination that we're out there fighting for our pace, place on a shelf as an Irish whiskey. And if we can get into every um, travel retail airport in the world in a meaningful way, we'll worry then about jostling which Irish whiskey off the shelf. But our first job is to get on there in the first place. That's, that's a great answer. Um, but like, why, why do you think that there's not that obsession with Irish whiskey among Irish people? Uh, it, like there are there is with French wine and that kind of thing. Like I know everybody talks about Irish whiskey, but you could name off the first three brands. Do you know what I mean? And not the not the one that coming from Kerry or the one from, coming from the Cork distillery. You know what I mean? So why do you think there's not that uh, all round obsession? Um, I think it's just a matter of history that, you know, a lot of when the whiskey industry took off, um, we were at a stage of trying to gain our independence from um, our neighbours and they held the secret to the licences. So um, you couldn't, it's hard to be playing ball with both feet um, when you were trying to get a licence to export. And as a consequence of that and many other reasons as well, but mainly that I think, you know, the Irish whiskey industry shrunk dramatically 
in the 20th century down to you know three working distilleries on the island of Ireland um, and it's really only in the last 10 or 15 years that um, the renaissance is starting now um, and therefore when it comes to things like visitor experience as well Irish people are getting more engaged with that Covid was a hammer blow for many of the distilleries starting off because the world shut Mm -hmm. Right. But one of the upsides we saw was more and more Irish people got engaged with the visitor experience and the fascination with it was important. So I think as we learn more about how it's made and we love knowing about how things are made in Ireland, you know, we love knowing. So you put it in the cask as a clear product and it comes out a brown, a caramel color, you know, a honey brown. How does that happen? Mm. You know, what kind of wood? Um, how do you mean it takes on the the, the the gnarls and knots of the woods? How does that happen? What impact does the weather have? What's this angel share business about evaporation? Mm-hmm. How do you mean the salty air impacts on it? Like we're fascinated by that. So I think as we get more engaged with that, we get more engaged in the product. Um, but coming from a base of three distilleries who had to look to export to really thrive and survive. And thanks for the goodness they did because they held the, you know, the secret sauce, um, as it were. Um, so I think there is um, there is a period of renaissance going on now. So I would love to see the writers that write so much about wine writing more about Irish whiskey, mm. because I think that Irish people we see from the visitor experience and they're so proud now to bring in their own overseas visitors I see there's a huge interest in it um, and it can be written about in a very interesting and engaging way. Mm. Well, I never knew that uh, whiskey uh, was a revolutionary thing coming from the <laughs> getting our independence as well. So that's that's great. Um, but also, do you think that pubs are doing enough in general to promote the small whiskies? And could there be more of an emphasis on on shops and pubs to be like, hang on a minute, like we're also here? Well, yes, but I mean, the pubs are also, I suppose, trying to get back on their feet in terms of um, the last couple of years and they have to make a living. So, it, you know, it would be fantastic if more Irish consumers went in and asked for specific brands. Mm. So instead of asking for a gin and tonic, ask for the gin you want and ask, is it local or not even is it local? Is it independent? Is it Irish? Know where it's made. Um, know if it's made we distill every drop and bottle every drop in Carcevine County Kerry we keep jobs there that's really important to us as a business um, so for the Irish consumers it's up to them to ask for it and then for the Irish pubs and the whole it's not just the pubs it's also the restaurants and the bars mm-hmm. um, the off licenses the supermarket chains to provide it so we are competing with um, shells aren't elastic either so even though many of them say, yes, I, you know, and they're very happy to support and we're getting great support nationwide, we're only getting the support to buy the second and third and fourth bottle off that shelf yeah. if consumers go in and buy and ask for it. Um, and that's valuable real estate on a publican shelf. But it's interesting to go in now and notice what's on the shelf. You know, mm. maybe more people will go in and just pay attention a little bit more as to what's on the shelf. As I said, you wouldn't go into a, a French um, off license and expect to see a whole bank greater than French wine there. So yeah. just pay a little bit, 
notice a bit more. I notice an awful lot more, obviously, I'm in the industry. But when I point it out to people, they go, Jesus, I never thought of that. But it matters. Maybe and the, yeah, it really does matter. Maybe the French are a bit more forthright. We're, we're renowned for not making a fuss. So we just go up to the bar and we're like, just give me, give me the gin or give me the whiskey. And we don't ask enough questions. It's a good point. Like we don't as a as a nation about what we're consuming and that kind of thing. And you, you can actually distill it down to just asking about your own gin and whiskey. Um, again, with setting up a distillery uh, and and what government can do, especially as they're looking at different things coming up to the budget now, uh, the EII scheme seems like it's made for whiskey distillers uh, because, you know, you can basically make the whiskey, leave it in the pot and then investors get their money back as years go on. Um, but is there anything that can be done to boost that scheme for distillers, especially after COVID now that the micro distillery boom has evened out a bit? Is there anything that do you see that there's any flaws with that scheme? Could there be more done to boost investment? What do you think? Um, The EIIS, which is the employment investment incentive scheme mm -hmm. has been running oh god 25 years i cut my teeth on the old bs schemes um as a young um lawyer training um so it's just to give your listeners a bit of background it comes out of europe and it is to encourage taxpayers in a particular jurisdiction to take a little bit of risk with savings and then they get a attractive tax relief from their income tax but it's across all their income tax not just what they earn from their um their living and their profession but across rental income across dividend income so it is run has been running in ireland and is constantly being tweaked so it is the amounts involved to set up a distillery are significant um ei and and the time scales that are required for repayment are longer than you might which that are typical in an eis investment scheme certainly the rules are very very technical and the rules in the uk are less technical which means that more people take a chance more often and therefore there is more funding available to UK businesses there. So I think we could certainly look and see how the UK have done it. And by the way, they have been doing it like that since they were part of the EU. So it's still with the overarching EU. Um, oh, isn't that nice? They still yeah, get yeah. that. <laughs> well, they set it up like that. Yeah. It's up to them to change it now. They don't have to say, like the Irish revenue, I have to say, oh, we have to comply with the EU. But my point is they already loosened it mm. and made it far more attractive to investors, to companies, um, and um, then then the Irish have. It's very technical here and it's not easy to access. But yes, it is something I think that could be looked at. Mm -hmm. And in terms of investors as well, and just putting the product out to market, has inflation been a big thing for you this year in terms of having to deal with price increases? Or, uh, you know, I know that you're past the, you've gotten your investor now, so you're fine. But that, like when you did EII at the beginning, um, the EII scheme, but do you think for new micro distilleries coming out now, is that dif a difficult space for them, the inflation and interest rate market in terms of setting the price, getting investors? Is that how what's that environment now compared to when you started out? Um, for us, because of the way we choose to run the business to have jobs based in Carcelene on the Skellig Coast, it means we bottle. So on a very practical level, trying to get glass bottles is a global challenge and right. yes you know the whole industry is looking at 
from sustainability perspective, how that might have to evolve and it will have to evolve. But in the interim period, we had to tie up a lot of cash in glass bottles because the only way we could get them was to order containers of them. Mm. And the only way you can get your product to market is to have it in a bottle. Um, there are some new innovative solutions that are coming on stream, but that is the traditional way of doing it. And we're too small to book that trend on our own. It's going to take the big boys to really move that along. So so your the minimum order quantities for anything um have gone up the price of energy has gone up um it we didn't pass that on um we weren't in the position of strength to do that so getting efficiencies in this industry is really important i suppose when you look at something like whiskey or indeed gin it's very simple in terms of the inputs i mean whiskey is grain and a little bit of yeast to make the alcohol water and electricity mm-hmm. and wooden casks so, you know, that's really what the ingredients are, which when you look at something like a pharma plant or a food ingredients plant, that's it's very simple. So where you get a lot of in, um, distilleries were designed and built when electricity was cheap and water was free. Mm, yeah. So anybody looking to get into the industry now really has to have best in class in terms of those because that will pinch your margin. And it's important for listeners as well to understand that the amount of tax that ends up on the price point when it lands on the shelf um, means that this is a high volume, low margin business when you're making whiskey um, or making gin. So to give you an example, our bottle of gin when it lands on the shelf is twelve ninety seven in alcohol products tax for every single bottle, mm. regardless as to whether I give it away for free or not. Um, and that's before VAT. So about 50% of the price is tax. So I just mentioned that in the context of understanding how getting efficiencies is so important because they can eat into your margin and being able to bring people onto your organisations that have knowledge and know more than you do. And we're very lucky we have a really strong advisory board in that respect um, is really important because you're you're trying to what we're trying to do and bearing in mind that our whiskey only launched in December of 2022. Um, we're trying to build the pieces in place for scale and so our exports markets that we just launched in 2023 um some in europe um two in um canada and now also just heard need to get the the i's dotted and the t's crossed but a north american market as well um we just need to go deep on those so back to the shelves aren't elastic you know you need to be creating brand awareness so that people buy you and buy the second bottle and the third bottle or the fourth bottle, because otherwise they'll just put somebody else's bottle on the shelf. Yeah. And that's why asking for us and buying it. And, and there's a, a direct link between an Irish consumer going into a shop and asking to buy a bottle and a job on, you know, our three Valencia lads working in Carcedine. There's a direct link. Mm-hmm. And just out of interest, to veer away a little bit from alcohol, does the does the alcohol free offering interest you at all? I see it's getting more and more popular and some distillers are saying, no, we're whiskey and gin and that's it. And we want to focus on our product. And other people are like, oh, yeah, like I can see the opportunities there. Where do you stand with that? Well, I 
I'm of the view always that you should drink better and drink less. Mm. And I've had no problem with minimum unit pricing. And, um, you know, I'm the parents of young people. And I think that's important. It is a healthy relationship towards it. So for us now, we need to stick to the knitting and we need to stick to what we have. We have two whiskey products on the market. One is a single pot still, which is that quintessential Irish style of whiskey making. Um, and we have a, a blend, which is a small batch, which is unique in the world in the sense that um, not unique in the world of Irish whiskey, but unique in the world of global whiskies. Um, so it's a grain whiskey, which is made of maize, corn on the cob, which gives you that sweet taste, which is what bourbon is made out of. Uh, but it also includes single pot still in it, which is a premium whiskey, which is also the components that Jemison is made from. So um, so we need to get those right. We need to get the gin right. And then certainly that's the trend and the way it's going. But I think it seems to be that people, if I look at the figures and the reporting for 2022, people are having the spirit free as an and as opposed to instead of often. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not easy to do, by the way. It's not easy to get the taste right. On the whiskey side with the GI file, you can't, there's no such thing as Irish whiskey that is not at least 40% alcohol. Mm. You can call it something else, but you can't call it Irish whiskey. If you want to call it something gin, it has to have 37.5% minimum alcohol in it. Um, and that's European law, not necessarily an Irish law. So certainly it's something that we're open to, but we need to bed down what we have now and get that out there. Mm-hmm. And then finally, June, um, you know, earlier you talked about how your gin in particular is like a dinner gin and, you know, a lot of ingredients go into it. In terms of the future of Skellig 618 and the deals that are on the line next, are you looking at food businesses, collaborations anywhere, or are you looking at your export market and, as you say, just focusing on what you have now and uh, what's next, basically? Um. Yeah, we're looking at our markets and we're so lucky that after COVID, we've been able to get out. We've gone to the trade fairs. We've got good distribution partners, vitally important for this business. And we need to bed that now and make them work. That what I have learned from my previous life in working with um, entrepreneurs and heads of global businesses is that um, you have to do excellence consistently in order to be success and to really drill into that and be very focused and to to get that done every single day um the all blacks um whom we're hoping we will teach how to play rugby in france very soon but there was a book written about 15 years ago called legacy and there was one lesson from that that i took which i know the irish teams and our local ga teams take things like this on board and that is, you know, you're always looking for that extra 5%, but you need to do it all the time. And over time, that's what gets you there. So staying focused is really, really important. Our gin is a gin for foodies. We know that foodies are interested in ingredients. They want to know how it's made. They want to know we make the distillate separately. We had fabulous input from a Michelin star chef to help us choose which of the ingredients we should use. We distill them separately. We integrate the taste over a couple of weeks. Um, and Irish people are fascinated by food and we're really lucky we're going to be at Food on the Edge in Airfield again um, this coming October with uh, LaRousse Foods, which is um, a part of the Musgrave group, um, talking to chefs, talking to other food producers. And I'm definitely going to that one. I want my hand up to get off the desk and go to that one. That's really fascinating talking to other foodie people who enjoy taste and food and ingredients. So love, love that date in the calendar. 
Great. Well, I think that's a, a great way to end our lovely conversation today. It's a pleasure as always talking to you, June. Uh, thank you for joining me on here today and thank you to everybody who listened. Join me for another episode of the IE Business Podcast next week. The IE Business Podcast brought to you by the Irish Examiner in association with PwC experts in audit, tax and advisory services.